bumper sticker theology. Now, you may not be familiar with the term, but I know you know what it is. It's where you take a bite-sized chunk of scripture, remove it from its biblical context, and indiscriminately apply it to your life situation or to someone else's. It's where you take, or an athlete might take Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and quote that right before he enters the game. And somehow, I don't think Paul had football in mind when he wrote that verse, but hey, the verse fits nicely on a bumper. Or it's when someone tries to comfort a friend who's going through a difficult season in life using Jeremiah 29, verse 11, for I know the plan I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that's a great promise, assuming that you're offering it to someone who is a covenant member of God's people, assuming that person is also cool with waiting 70 years in exile before those good plans come to fruition. Somehow, I don't think that's what they had in mind. Bumper sticker theology sounds great, feels comforting, but when scripture verses are ripped from their context and applied indiscriminately, we risk giving people false assurances and disillusioning them with God and God's word. If you promise to me from God's word that I can do all things through God who strengthens me and you just give that to me, indiscriminately, and yet if I fail to accomplish one of the goals that I am am earnestly pursuing, well, then I might be left confused and questioning where is God when you need him. But instead of questioning God, maybe we need to start questioning the way we interpret and apply God's word. And that's really one of the goals of, of preaching expository sermons. That's what we are committed to do here in our church to preach sermons that allow the biblical passage to govern the emphasis and the shape of the message. We want to help you as listeners to develop and grow as readers, as readers of God's word. And so by now, you should know that that what we're trying to do here is to help you to properly interpret and apply, especially these popular verses that are so easily memorized apart from their context. And so when we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, we've got to read them not in isolation, but as part of a whole sermon. And, and, And a sermon is not just a lecture where you're giving people ethical instructions to live by. No, a sermon is where the Christian instructions to live by are grounded in and motivated by the Christian gospel. It's where the imperatives of the Christian life are rooted in the indicatives, the facts of the Christian gospel regarding the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so this morning's passage, we've got two verses here that look great on a bumper sticker. First of all, you've got verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And that is such an amazing promise of answered prayer. And then you've got, of course, the golden rule in verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, so also do to them. Now these verses 
are familiar, even to non-religious people. They're so common. They're so commonly applied. But if you just gave people verse 7 on a bumper sticker, they'll probably turn into atheists after repeated disappointment with unanswered prayer. Or if, if you just give people verse 12 on a bumper sticker without context, they'll probably turn into moralists. They'll turn into scribes and Pharisees who treat the golden rule like it's some kind of ethical code to live by, failing to realize that no one can actually live out the golden rule without grace and without faith. So what we're going to do this morning is to study these verses in the context of a gospel-centered sermon. And that's very fitting of a description for the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to come across three imperatives that touch on our relationship to God and to others. We're going to be seeing here in our passage that we are called to first pray to God with dogged persistence. Second, we are called to pray with childlike confidence. And third, we are called to love others with selfless consideration. You want to follow along, uh, there's a bullet, uh, an outline in your bulletin with those three points listed. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to argue that our position before God, that your, your position before God and your perception of that relationship is what makes all the difference here. How you see God and how you see yourself in relation to God, which all depends on the gospel, is what determines whether you're going to pray with dogged persistence or pray with childlike confidence or love other people with selfless consideration. So let's begin with the call for dogged persistence in our pursuit of God in prayer. And I see this in verses 7 to 8, so I'll read that for us again. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now all three verbs there, ask, seek, knock, are in a tense, a verb tense that suggests a continuous action. So Jesus is telling us to keep asking to keep seeking, to keep knocking. Now, I don't think there's too much to be gained by parsing out the differences between those three verbs. I think really the emphasis is just on our persistence in prayer. We are called to pray without ceasing. We are called to be constant in prayer. Now, I'm not surprised if when you were reading this, you know, if you had read the Sermon on the Mount on your own, and you're going through chapter 5, chapter 6, now you're in chapter 7. I'm not surprised if these verses on prayer kind of seem to come out of nowhere, right? I mean, Jesus was just talking to us about taking the plank out of your eye before you point out the speck in another's. And now, a few verses on prayer? And then suddenly the golden rule? Well, you know, chapter 7 doesn't seem to flow as well as chapter 5 or chapter 6. They seem to be more of a unified whole. You can kind of follow along and track better with the argument. It kind of feels like Matthew here in, in chapter 7 is just kind of throwing together a bunch of various sayings of Jesus to kind of wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. But that's when you start treating these verses like bumper sticker theology. I'd argue 
that an emphasis on persistent prayer is totally fitting when you consider the high demands for righteousness that we've already seen laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's do a quick review here. In verse 12, if you notice, Jesus calls the golden rule a good summary of the law and the prophets. And we saw that phrase being used earlier back in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 17, there his point was that his teaching is not in opposition to the law and the prophets, but in conjunction with it. So everything between chapter 5, verse 17 to chapter 7, verse 12 should be read as a whole. Jesus, what he does earlier in chapter 5 is he starts challenging the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because it was only dealing with with surface-level conformity to the law. Their their view of righteousness, Jesus says, has overlooked heart-level trust and obedience to the lawgiver. And so Jesus goes on to teach that if you expect to be in the kingdom of heaven, then your anger something that goes on just in your heart. People don't necessarily see it. Your anger must be renounced. Your lust must be mortified. Your marriage vows must be kept. Your integrity must be unquestioned. Your desires for revenge must be extinguished. Your your love must be directed, not just towards your friends, but even your enemies. You must have a private devotional life apart from public view. You must serve God alone and renounce any allegiance to money and the accumulation of it for personal gain. You must not be anxious and worry about your life. And you must not judge others without a clear sense of your own sinfulness. Bottom line, as he told us in chapter 5, verse 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So by the time you get to chapter 7, verse 7, you should be baffled. You should be wondering to yourself, who is sufficient for these things? If this is the kind of righteousness being required, then who can enter the kingdom of heaven? If you seriously consider If you seriously consider what it takes to enter the kingdom, you would confess that you just don't have it. You would see yourself as poor in spirit, as just a pauper before the high king of heaven. If that's how you perceive yourself and you perceive God and you in relation to him, he is the high king, you are just a poor man, a poor beggar woman. If that's your position before God, then asking, seeking, knocking on the door, praying unceasingly for God to grant what it takes to enter the kingdom, isn't that a fitting response? Wouldn't you expect a few verses on prayer? It's when you fail to see this connection with the rest of the sermon, that's when you begin to interpret verses 7 to 8 as some sort of bumper sticker promise granting you whatever you wish. You know, maybe you've been praying for certain things to happen in your life. Maybe you've been seeking for a certain relationship to work out or for God to uh, grant you, you know, a spouse, to grant you the, a, a child, to be able to start a family. 
Maybe you've been knocking on doors in your career path, hoping God opens up at least one of them. And you're getting discouraged because you read a verse like this, and it does say that everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be open. There's this, there's this plain guarantee. That there's a surety, a direct promise right here in this verse. And so, so why hasn't God answered? Why hasn't he granted my request? Why, why doesn't he hold up his end of the promise? Does he not care? Is he even there? Do you see, friends, how, 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 how these verses can create an existential dilemma? But of course, my point is that that only happens if you've already taken the verses out of context. Jesus is not giving us here a blank promise to grant whatever we ask. But, but he is giving us a powerful promise to grant what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven if we keep asking and seeking and knocking. God is promising to make us kingdom citizens who actually exhibit the kind of kingdom righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. That, my friends, is a prayer that you can be sure that God will always answer if you pray for it. He may not grant you acceptance into that college of your dreams. He may not open up that particular door in your career path. He may not give you success. He may not give you healing. But if you, my friends, are asking for the kingdom, if you recognize your spiritual poverty and you are asking him for righteousness, if you are asking God, oh, please make me righteous as you are righteous, if you keep asking, it will be given to you. That is a promise that you can bank on. Don't take that lightly. Don't just set that one aside. Say, oh, yeah, 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 I know. Do you know that God is giving you a guarantee in prayer? You pray. You pray to be more righteous as he is righteous. He will answer in his time. That's a prayer you can bank on. Now, I realize, though, I realize your prayer life goes beyond just asking for righteousness. I, mean, I know, you still pray for relationships. You still pray for career opportunities, for, for your children to make wise choices. You pray for the welfare of your aging parents. You pray for the salvation of non-believing family and friends. So even though th there's no guarantee, even though there's no surety that God is going to grant those particular requests, these verses here can still apply. They are still calling you to persist in asking and seeking and knocking. Of course, not, not with the mindset that if I pray enough, if I, if I pray for something enough times, I somehow prove my seriousness or I prove to God my worthiness to be granted that request. No, no, that, that, there's no set number that God is waiting for me to reach before he's willing to act on my behalf. And it's not like I can, I can somehow wear God down. I can annoy him enough, bug him enough until he finally gives in. Yeah, I know there is that parable of the persistent widow found in Luke chapter 18, you know, where a widow keeps bothering this unjust judge coming to court every single day, pleading her case until he finally just is exasperated and he gives in and he grants her justice. 
And I can see how, how someone might interpret that, that passage to mean that we are to do the same. We are to wear down God, bug him enough until he finally gives in. But Jesus interprets it differently. Jesus says, if this unjust judge who has no compassion, if he wears down, if you bother him enough, and will not God, just look at what this judge does, and will not God do abundantly more, a God who is perfectly just, a God who is deeply compassionate. It's not a comparison here. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is saying, you keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking, go ahead. It doesn't give God a headache. You persistently asking actually gives God great delight because it gives him great glory. Because it demonstrates what you think of him, that, that he's sovereign, that he's just. And he's compassionate, that he's the only one who can really help you, that he's your only hope and stay. That is what persistent prayer proclaims about your God to whom you pray. Now, of course, friends, you have to, you have to you know, face the possibility that maybe, maybe your prayers are not being answered in the way that you expect because what you're asking for is wrong. What you're asking for might be for sinful purposes, for selfish gain. That's what the Apostle James actually says in James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But now let's assume that you're actually asking for good things, things that glorify God, things that do good to other people. If God has yet to answer... Well, then Jesus is instructing us to keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking on that door. Just go beyond the point when it gets awkward. Just keep on knocking. It won't bother God. He does not mind. It won't annoy. So Christian, I wonder, why have you stopped praying? Or why are you on the verge of giving up? Don't, don't say it's pointless. Don't say God has heard it enough times. God says, no, no, keep it coming. Keep it coming. I, you know, I, I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know why it's taking so long. But I do know that God welcomes you to pray boldly and to pray persistently, to keep knocking until he answers. If you have this right perspective of God, friends, it will empower you to pray with dogged persistence. And if we keep on reading in verses 9 to 11, we're going to see how another perspective of God is going to empower you to pray with childlike confidence. This is our second point. Look, starting in verse 9. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So again, here Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. 
He gives two examples of how good earthly fathers can be counted on to give good gifts to their children. If a son asks for bread, is his father going to give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, is he going to give him a serpent? No, experience tells us that good fathers give their children what's good for them. Now, if good earthly fathers who are inherently evil give good gifts to their children, then how much more will the heavenly, good heavenly father? And, and that's the key there. The fatherhood of God. Earlier, Jesus taught his disciples to address God as our father who is in heaven. But that's not, that's not a privilege for all mankind. That, that was a prayer given to his disciples. Jesus' followers, believers, are given the privilege of praying to God as Father. Because no, notice how Jesus just kind of casually throws out the doctrine of human depravity, right? Just there, just kind of a little parentheses, you who are evil. See, due to the fall, due to Genesis chapter 3, mankind is under a curse. We, we are born, we're told, fallen. We are born evil by nature. Even when we do good things, did you notice? Even when we do good things like, like taking care of our children, we are still rightly identified as evil. That means that unregenerate man is no child of God. We are born sinners. We are born estranged from God, at enmity with him. You come into this world with God not as your father, but as your enemy. And yet, and yet scripture leaves us speechless when it tells us that the father loves his enemies. That he shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So that's why the Apostle John says, to behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we, we who are sinners, evil by nature, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are because of his mercy, by virtue of a second birth. For those who receive Christ, who believe in his name, God has given the right to become children of God. And so if he is now your father, that changes everything when it comes to your approach to him in prayer, especially if you're dealing with unanswered prayer. Because when, when your heavenly father says no to your prayers, or when he says wait, or when he just doesn't say anything at all, I know what it feels like. I, I know it feels like he's giving you a stone. It feels like he's cruelly giving you a serpent. But according to Jesus, his silence, his no, is actually a good gift. You may not understand it, but it's actually bread for you. It's actually a fish. It's for our good. It may not feel like it yet. From our, from our finite perspective, his actions or his inaction might seem cruel, but it's in those times when you can't trace his hand 
You've got to trust his heart. That's a Charles Spurgeon quote. You can't trace God's hand. You've got to trust his heart. I think one of the hardest things to do as a father is to take your toddler to an annual checkup where it usually ends with a vaccination shot. I remember a few years back, I had to take uh, my daughter by myself, and when the needle came out, oh man, all hell broke loose. I, I literally had to pin her down. I mean, the nurse was like a wrestling coach. She's like, hey, 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 lock her arm, you know, put your weight into it. And I, I am using all of my strength to hold down this little girl. And I'm sure my daughter was thinking her dad has lost it. What, what is he doing? Why, why would he hold me down and purposely let this cruel woman stab me with a needle? But if my little girl could only understand that the prick of a needle, as painful or as scary as that may be, pales in comparison to catching polio or tuberculosis. Now, of course, at, at an immature age, she's probably not going to get any of that. She's still going to put up a fight. But as she matures, as she grows up, as she comes to have a better understanding and trust in her father's heart, she'll come to learn that sometimes dads are going to do things that we just don't understand, but we just have to trust that they are good for us. That's not being ignorant. That's not being childish. That's being childlike in your faith, exactly what Jesus calls us to be. Now, I once heard Tim Keller say something like, you can be sure that God will always give you everything you would ask for if you knew everything he knew. You can be sure God will give you everything you ask for if you knew everything he knew. And of course, it takes some gospel humility to admit that as a child, I don't know what he knows. I don't have God's wisdom. I don't have his omniscience. And so keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking with childlike confidence, trusting that you do have a all good, all wise father in heaven who knows something you don't, who knows a lot that you don't. Now, you know, maybe you grew up with a bad father or maybe no father at all. And so you might have lost these childlike instincts at a very young age. But, you know, by adulthood, all of us have lost them anyhow. We grow skeptical towards God. We grow very impatient with him. We demand to know exactly what he's thinking, exactly what he is doing in every step of our lives. But growing in your faith, maturing as a believer, means to recover those childlike instincts that you once had. It means no, no, no matter how long it takes or how discouraged you get, you just keep asking, you keep seeking, you keep knocking, trusting as you would a good heavenly father. Now this perception of God as father is, friends, essential if you expect to actually live out the next verse, you live out the golden rule. This leads to our, our third imperative here, to love others with selfless consideration. Now, here, here's a test, okay? Don't look down at your Bible. 
Look at me. Don't look down at your Bible. And answer this in your head. What's the first word of the golden rule? Think about it. Are you thinking the word do, as in do unto others? Or are, are you thinking maybe the word whatever, whatever you do or whatever you wish? Okay, now, now, now look down. Look down and see. What's the first word of the golden rule? It's probably in your Bible, the word so, or the word therefore. We ignore it. We skip right over it. We go right to doing something. And we, we don't realize the connection, the connection that makes all the difference. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever asked yourself, why does the golden rule start with the word so or therefore? Without context, the golden rule is just simply good ethics. It's just this pithy saying. You might as well slap on your bumper sticker. But if you read in context, you realize that the golden rule follows a word, a golden word of grace. Remember, Jesus just told his disciples that God is your heavenly father who graciously gives good gifts even though you are evil. So, therefore, keep the golden rule. Think about it. Think about this connection. If I have a father in heaven who loves me, who takes care of me, who always looks out for my interests, even though I'm so undeserving of this kind of love, then that liberates me. It frees me to start living selflessly, to, to, to start considering others' interests above my own, loving my neighbors as myself. Do you see how it empowers you to live out the golden rule? Like I said, the golden rule on a bumper sticker is just going to produce a bunch of moralists. But the golden rule, understood and applied in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, in response to the Father's love being most clearly demonstrated to us in the cross, that is going to produce selfless Christians whose good works give glory to their Father who is in heaven. Now, it's often pointed out that you know, other world religions have a golden rule. Other cultures have some form of, of, of this rule. But you know, outside of the Bible, you're only going to find it phrased in the negative. So, for example, Confucius, Confucius of all people, he said, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. Now, the Greek Stoics had an almost identical saying to that. In the apocryphal book of Tobit, this is ancient Jewish literature. This is literature written between the Testaments among the Jewish community. It says, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. So do you see here, it's, 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 it's about what you don't like. It's about what you don't wish for. I, I, I don't wish to be robbed, so I'm not going to rob anyone. I don't like being insulted, so you know, I'm not going to insult anyone. Now, some people are going to downplay the, the distinction between a negative or a positive form of the rule, saying, you know, hey, it's all the same in the end. But I would beg to differ. I would beg to differ. Because if all you had was a negative form of the golden rule, then you could justify yourself as long as you avoid causing any harm to any other person. If you just disengage 
from everyone if you just keep at a distance and avoid making any real deep relationships with people you can avoid doing other people harm you just live as an island by yourself then you keep the golden rule I didn't do anything to you that I don't like being done to myself but the way that Jesus frames the golden rule in the positive it leaves you no outs we are called to not just avoid doing harm but to go out and do positive good to other people to treat others the way you want them to treat you. So do you like it when people give you a second chance when you mess up? Well, then be gracious and give second chances to other people. Do you like it when, when people give you the benefit of doubt and don't jump to conclusions? Well, then be gracious and do the same for them. If you only keep the golden rule in its negative form, then, friends, you're, you're only operating in the realm of justice. I'm only going to treat you justly. But Jesus' golden rule moves you beyond strict justice into the vast expanses of grace. You start treating people with grace. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That is a saying of grace. And only those who have experienced grace themselves are able to give it. So have you experienced God's grace? Have you been converted? Have you received the second birth? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if not, well then you're not yet a Christian. You're not a child of God. He's not your father. And so no matter how much you admire the golden rule, no matter how hard you try to live it out, you will not be able to keep it because it was never meant to be indiscriminately applied to all of mankind as an ethical code for them to live by. It was always meant to be a good summary of the law and the prophets of the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And that means the golden rule, just like the rest of God's law, can only be kept faithfully by those who are transformed by the gospel and empowered by that very same gospel. And so to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask you, how do you plan to keep the golden rule? Even this week, with your coworkers, with your small group, with your family members, with even the stranger on the street or the other drivers stuck in traffic. Do so, not in your own strength or for your own glory like you had the golden rule on your bumper, but all in the power of the Spirit secure in the love of the Father, all for the glory of the Son. Let's pray.